0: time for us to begin welcome to everyone special welcome to any visitors that we have our first song is going to be number 282 we'll sing that in just a moment um, Jerry Fry will have the reading of prayer at the appropriate time uh, Derek Knapp will have the uh, closing prayer and Chris will deliver the message Let's be standing while we sing number
1: 282. I know.
0: song will be number 238 238 other congregations where I've been um, we've sung this a little bit differently we're going to try it tonight first off we're going to start with sopranos on the first verse add the altos on the second add the tenors on the third and add the basses on the fourth makes a nice layering building effect And I hope it's scriptural. Mm. holy.
2: We'd like to read along the scripture that Chris has chosen for tonight is taken from the book of Esther, Esther 4, 12 through 16, the book of Esther, chapter 4, 12 through 16. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for you for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Sushan, and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Would you bow with me, please? Kind and gracious Father, we thank you for another service that we have this first day of the week. We do thank you for the first day of the week and that is appointed for the saints together and to those that are in discipleship to follow you and your son, Father. And We do thank you for your son and for demonstrating love to us first, that we can love you back for what you did given us your your only begotten son father and we thank you for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf for we know that we were trapped in our sins and only that supreme sacrifice could help meritoriously uh not through merit but could help us gain heaven father we're mindful of all those in the congregation that are battling cancer at this time and particularly uh jimmy wilgus comes to mind uh, the news this morning i just pray that as he goes to the James Center in Columbus, that uh, the cell treatment will be effective. Just pray that you be with him and bless Jim and Margaret and Jim as he cares for her and be with Margaret as well. Be with all of our shut-ins as well, Father. Uh, pray that you will continue to be with them and bless them. Father, also mindful of Joe and Sandy's granddaughter, just pray that you'll be with Merritt and pray that his uh, battles. Uh, die, diabetes, that that you will just bless Jeff and uh, the rest of the family, Father, and continue to be with them and strengthen them. Father, continue to be with uh, Chris and Dave and our elders and our deacons as they lead here at uh, Rome. Just pray that you will be with them and bless them, Father, and uh, mindful of all those that are traveling at this time from our congregation, just pray that you will be with them and bless them and give them a safe passage back to us. And for those that will be going in the near future, just pray the same for them. Continue to be with us. And, Father, forgive us when we fall short of doing those things that we know that we need to be doing. We have sin in our lives. And just ask that you uh, strengthen us and help us. And may we try to do better. And will you help us in that endeavor, Father? Thank you again for the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's through him that I do ask all these things. Amen.
0: For our lesson, let's stand and sing number 180, 180. Sing all three verses. If you're using a songbook, our song of invitation will be number 148.
1: 148. <sighs> Come, let us all unite to sing Yeah.
3: Finished out uh, another trip, a mission trip to uh, Beckley, West Virginia, uh, and so we had a great trip. But it is it is good to be home. We uh, while we were there, we took nine folks, my family, and uh, Marvin and Christy and Dwight, and uh, we we uh, basically went around to all the families that had moved into their area over the last year or so, as many as we could hit, um, and knocked on the door and asked if we could pray for them, if we could help them in any way. Uh, if they had a church home if they were interested in spiritual things we continued on the conversation like that so we were able to knock on something around 150 doors and got around 20 30 40 responses something like that uh, around 30 responses uh, and so one of the things uh, about short-term mission work like this is it gets in your blood and that's that's really when I when I first started thinking about this trip that was one of the um, the, the hopeful things I had for this trip was that it would get in, in my children's blood at least. Uh, Kelly got to take a trip with her family when she was nine uh, and, and started loving mission work from then on. I got to take a trip to New Zealand with her and, and uh, Fried Hardman when I was 20 or so. It got in my blood there. and it, It's one of those things where you're never too old uh, for it to, to get inside of you and you begin to, to love mission work. You begin to, to see what God does. In even short-term trips like this, you get to have conversations with people that you wouldn't normally have conversations with. Normally, we're very busy here, living our own lives, doing things like we're going to the grocery store, and you've got a list, right? If you don't have a list, what happens when you go to the grocery store? You buy some things that you don't need, right? So we all make a list, and you're there, you're on your own mission, right? You've you got a purpose, and if uh, you deviate, then you forget what you're there for, right? And so we don't always... Take time to have these kinds of conversations that we get to have on mission trips, here at home. Uh, it's easier for some reason to have those types of conversations somewhere else. And so, when you get to have those conversations, whether they're here or somewhere else, you get to see how God works. You get to see Him moving in people's lives, and you'll you'll talk to someone just off the street, just a random person, and they'll say, "You know what? I have been thinking about getting back into church," and and that. That's an open door. You start getting to, to have this conversation with them that you wouldn't normally get to have. And it's a, just a neat thing to experience. And if you experience enough of those opportunities, you begin to love that kind of stuff. And when you come back here, come back home, you start looking for more of those kinds of opportunities. And so um, I know it was just a short trip, but it, I think it was beneficial uh, for, for them. Uh, we, we gathered, uh, like I said, about around 30 contacts for them to follow up on. Um, but certainly it was beneficial for us. And so um, just a quick rundown on our trip there. We also got to give out 15 or 20 uh, bags for new for, for teachers. So that was, uh, that was interesting. It was cool to get to be able to do that kind of work. Um, obviously, you guys know teachers buy their own supplies. And so they were looking for an opportunity to bless uh, some folks in their community. And that's, that's what they chose. And so we got to uh, interact with some of the teachers like that. Uh, and got to give away some some free supplies. And so that was beneficial. So that was kind of our quick rundown on our trip. Grab your Bibles and turn to uh, Old Testament book of Joshua. We're going we're gonna start in Joshua tonight. This is the sermon I preached this morning at their congregation. I thought it'd be beneficial for us to hear this this evening too. My faith is like a how might you finish that phrase? My faith is like a well, tonight we're going to finish that phrase in three different ways. Uh, the first one comes from Joshua chapter 14. Let me give you some background, though, What's what all's happened uh, from the book of Numbers all the way to the book of Joshua. So, in Joshua, obviously Joshua is the commander of Israel. But before him, Moses was in charge of Israel. And he has, in Numbers, uh, sent out... Twelve spies to spy out the promised land, right? To spy out Canaan. Ten of them will come back and they're going to give a very bad report. Um, It's interesting that when the Bible tells this story in Numbers, I think it's chapter 13, he tells this story. He, He says that the spies, one of them got... ...a branch and he started the line and on the branch were some grapes. And then there was another guy holding the back end of that branch of grapes. And so when you're reading through that section... ...you're supposed to see the grapes that are they are they're just massive. Or the cluster is massive. So big that two grown men need to carry it on a pole between them. It's not like you carry it in a basket. they They've got it on a pole. And so... Right after that, that episode is re- recorded for us, uh, the spies, all 12 of them, come back to give the report to all of Israel. And the Bible says that 10 of the spies came back and they said, there's no way we can take this land. It's, it's bountiful. God was right. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. Uh, did you see the grapes? This is just a, a portion, just, just a glimmer of how bountiful the land is. Of course, God was right. But what he didn't tell us is that there's giants in the land uh, and we're scared of them. They live in fortified cities. They're on top of mountains. Uh, they're not just farmers, these giants. They're, they're warriors and they have all kinds of weapons and they're, they're trained in war. And so we're scared of them. And those ten spies poison the hearts of the entire congregation of Israel. They turn the entire generation of Israel's hearts away from God with this bad report. It's amazing the power that just a few have, isn't it? That's the report of the, t- of the ten. But there were twelve spies, right? We're missing two. Caleb and Joshua are the last two spies. And when the ten give their bad report, Caleb and Joshua throw up some red flags and they say, whoa, whoa, God said he would give us this land. He's done incredible things for us up until this point. We should go be faithful and take the land. If he's promised it to us, he's going to give it to us. We need to stop and recount, I suppose, some of the things that God has done for Israel up until this point, just so you can understand where Israel's at, where their mindset ought to be, where God expected their mindset to be. Maybe we need to go back and recount some of the details here. Well, they've experienced ten plagues, but they didn't experience all of them because God shielded Israel from a good many of the plagues. But they got to experience the, the, the Egyptians having all ten of the plagues all the way up until the death of the firstborn. They were the ones, this generation, the ones who didn't believe in God enough to obey him. They were the ones who had gotten the, the hyssop branch and, and the blood and they had sprayed their uh, doorposts, painted their doorposts with the blood, and the death angel passed over those houses. Every house that didn't have that treatment, the firstborn died in that house. Every house in Egypt. The Israelites got to experience that. They got to experience bread falling from heaven every morning and every night. This happens before Sinai. Go back through and read your text. This is in Exodus 16, when when he sends down the manna and the quail. This happens before Sinai. Well, before even Sinai again, they're going to get water from a rock. You ever drank from a rock? Me neither. (laughs) Right? He is doing incredible things. In their seeing... They're experiencing these things. It's not like they had this secondhand information. It's not like they heard tell of these incredible things. They've experienced them. They saw them with their own eyes. They were hungry, and God said, I'm going to give you bread, and it's going to fall down from heaven, and all you have to do is walk out and pick it up. Every morning and every night, this is what's going to happen. All you have to do is go pick it up. And so what did they do? They went out every morning and every evening, and they picked it up. After something like that happens, you would expect them to think, well, if God says we can take the land, how about, what do you guys think, let's just go take the land? Because I think this God's capable of doing whatever He wants. Even before that, one of the things that we failed to mention that, that Scripture focuses on a lot is the parting of the Red Sea. He destroys the Egyptian army. But before that, he allows the Israelites to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. When the Egyptians come in and they try to, take, they try to catch up to them, uh, after the Israelites are out of the Red Sea, God brings the waters back in and he wipes out the Egyptian army. How can the people that are standing on this side of the Red Sea after having walked through it on dry land, after having watched God bring it down on the Egyptian army, how can the people on this side of the Red Sea be standing on this side of Canaan and think we can't do it because God's too small? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Where's their faith? They don't have any. They don't have any. So, now we're back to our question, my faith is like a, my faith is like a what? Their faith is like a demon's faith. That's what James says, right? James chapter 2. Even the demons believe in what? Even the demons believe and they tremble. They're scared of God. But it hasn't motivated them to do anything, to make any changes, to express their faith in some way. Faith is a verb. It does something. It's active. If it's not active, it's not faith. Right? Right? That's what James says. In fact, he has a different word for it. If your faith isn't active, it is dead. James 2.20. If your faith's not active, it's dead. If you're not doing anything, if your faith hasn't motivated you to do anything, it's not faith. It's something else. James doesn't let us in on what he might call that thing, but it's not faith. Because faith does things. And so my faith, our faith, needs to be like a giant killer's faith. Look in Joshua chapter 14. Joshua is now, uh, he and Caleb at least, are the only two that are left alive from that generation that didn't trust God. The ones that trusted uh, the giants, that feared the giants. God has waited 40 years on that entire generation to die. Now they're all gone. Caleb and Joshua are the Oldest people in the entire congregation of Israel by 20 years, at least. Because everyone 20 years and older in that first generation that exited Egypt, they're all gone. They're all dead except Caleb and Joshua. Now, Caleb, at least, we know Caleb, we know how old he is. We don't know how old Joshua is, uh, but we know how old Joshua, uh, Caleb is because he tells us in, here, in, here in Joshua chapter 14, he's 85 years old. You know what Caleb wants to do? He's thinking back, now that the land is mostly conquered, they're not, they're not completely done conquering the land, but they're, they're a good bit into it. And so Caleb's looking back on that previous 40 years, and he's thinking, you know, God made us this promise, and I haven't forgotten about it. When I was one of the 12 spies, he's talking to Joshua when he says this, when we were one of the 12 spies walking into, prom, into the Canaan's land, then God promised me that whatever my feet, trod on, would be mine. I'm ready to pull in that promise. I'm ready to cash that promise in. Because I know that God's faithful. I know he's powerful enough. And I'm ready to do my part. My, my faith is leading me to do something. And so jo, uh, Caleb, at 85 years old, says, I've got an idea Caleb. I'm ready to cash in on God's promises and I am going to Ask you for leave to go conquer the land that remains unconquered. Now, the land that remains unconquered is what we know today as modern-day Jerusalem. They hadn't conquered that little bit of, of Canaan yet. Yet, Jerusalem, as you know, is up on top of a mountain. It's well fortified and has been historically uh, for centuries, right? Millennia behind those fortifications in Joshua and Caleb's day, the giants are still there. And so Caleb, at 85 years old, says, I'm ready to cash in on God's promises and I'm going to go initially by himself. He he doesn't have an army at his back and he's not asking for an army from, from Joshua. He's asking leave for himself to go. At 85 years old, fighting giants uphill behind fortifications. There's his faith. We need faith like that. The faith of a giant killer. His faith motivated him to do something. If it's not motivating us to do something, it ain't faith. something else. So we need the faith of a giant killer. Second, flip over to uh, Jud- uh, Judges chapter 7. While we're in the Old Testament, just... Hang out there and go over to Judges chapter 7. Let's meet a guy named Gideon. Judges chapter 7. When Jesus was teaching his disciples about faith, um, he mentioned that even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, that God can do incredible things through even that small bit of faith. Now, I'm sure you know, mustard seeds are the tiniest of seeds, right? Uh, when you just look at it, you wouldn't think anything substantial could come from this type of seed. It's, it's, it's diminutive. But when Kelly and I have been in Africa, we've gotten the chance to see mustard trees, and they're massive. They're not as tall as sequoias, but you can't wrap your arms around the big ones, not even halfway around. They're, they're enormous. And so out of this tiny little seed comes this massive tree. And God says, if you've just got this little bit of faith, God can do incredible things if you're willing to step out just a little bit. One of the things I want us to learn from, from this illustration, this I want to have a mustard seed faith. My faith is like a mustard seed. Is God can do incredible things through small numbers. God can do incredible things through small numbers. In fact, that's what he likes to do. In Judges chapter 7, Gideon has an army at his back. They're 32,000 men strong. And on the opposite side of the field is the Midianites. Now, 32,000 soldiers sounds like an awful lot until you understand that you can't even count the Midianites. It's interesting to me that he said he gave us the exact number of Israelites. Right? Right? We know exactly how many Israelites were in their army, 32,000. But when he looks at the Midianites, if you were to get on top of a a mountain and look down onto their camp and start trying to count them, you'd lose count. It's like trying to count the stars in the sky or or the, the uh, the grains of sand on the beach. He says, this is impossible. You'd lose count every time. So Gideon has been tasked with fighting against that army. He's got 32,000 guys at his back. And God says, Gideon, that's too many. You've got to be in Gideon's shoes to understand this story, right? You've got to stop and think how Gideon would have reacted to this news, that his army is too many to defeat the army that can't even be counted. Gideon's got to be thinking, well, I counted my army and I can't count their army. So this seems like you meant too few, Lord. It seems like you meant go recruiting more. And God says, no, you have too many soldiers. You know why he said that? Because if you have enough soldiers, you're going to be tempted, Gideon, to think that you did this on your own and you didn't do it on your own. God likes to work in small numbers. So the crowd that's here tonight... God can do incredible things through a small group of people. He can do incredible things through one person, right? Think about the 80 or so that are here tonight. What can he do through 80 faithful, faithful people? Incredible things, right? So God says, Gideon, tell your army if anybody's afraid. They should just go home. Gideon's like, I'm afraid. Can I go home? You know, like we've already had that battle with Gideon, right? And and when we meet him, he's afraid. And he tests God a couple times. And finally, he's like, okay, this really is God. And so uh, I'm on board. But you know, the fear is still there. And you're going to find that out in the story as you read through uh, Judges chapter 7. He's still afraid. And so if you're afraid, you go ahead and head home. 22,000 of his soldiers head home. Gideon looks back, and he's got 10,000 men at his back now, and he still can't count the Midianites. They haven't lost anybody, but he's lost 22,000 of his soldiers. And so God says, still too many, Gideon. Too many? What are you saying, Lord? I don't have enough, right? No, if you were to win this battle with 10,000, you would still be tempted to think that you can do this on your own, and you're not working under your own power, Gideon. This is me. I'm doing this thing. He likes to work through small numbers. Don't let the numbers mess you up. Because God doesn't do math like we do math. He works on faithfulness, not on numbers. So, how big's your faith? If your faith's like a giant killer's faith, God can and will do incredible things through you. If your faith is like a demon's faith and it's never doing anything, there's no power there, is there? That's not faith. So, The story ends with Gideon, uh, God telling Gideon to take the people down by the river. And they're going to narrow the 10,000 down to 300. And so Gideon has finally got his army. He's got his faithful 300 ready. And they're going to go fight against the Midianite hordes, right? And they've got armor, no doubt. And they've got swords and spears and javelins, right? No. That's not what they're equipped with. They don't have weapons. We're not even told they have armor. You know what they go into this battle with? Torches and clay jars, the worst possible weapons you could have, right? But you know what happens? In the middle of the night, when they start this battle, God routs the Midianites and Israel wins the day, and it's not even close. The Israelites don't lose a man, and the Midianites lose thousands. And they tuck their tails and they run, because God likes to work through small numbers. If you've got just the faith of a mustard seed... He can do incredible things. But if your faith's not motivating you to do something, it's not really faith. So our faith needs to be like a giant killers. It needs to be like a mustard seed. It does not need to be like a ruler, like a ruler. Uh, This is where Esther comes in. So go ahead and turn your Bibles back to Esther chapter 4. We're staying in the Old Testament tonight. Esther chapter 4. (coughs) <coughs> so, I'm sure you know the story, right? Esther uh, has been chosen to become queen of Persia. She's not queen of Israel. She is an Israelite, but she is going to be chosen to be queen of Persia. The ones who have captured the Israelites. The ones that are, have enslaved the Israelites. And she's going to hide this, her ancestry... From the king, a guy we know in history as Xerxes, he's insane, right? If you go back through and you you walk through this guy in history, he is a military commander. He is ruthless, and he is just about as crazy as they come, right? Um, One time, the the seas mess up his plan, and he has them whipped, right? That's the kind of guy we're dealing with. He is her husband, king over the Persians, and ruler of the Israelites at this point in history because they are his slaves. He needs a new queen. And so Esther is eventually chosen uh, through this process. She doesn't let on her ancestry. And so time passes and Mordecai, her uncle, runs afoul of a guy named Haman. Haman is going to learn to hate the Jews if he doesn't already. More history there that we probably should walk into. But We don't have time tonight. But he hates the Jews because of past um, interactions with his family and the the Jewish family. Um, And so when Mordecai runs afoul of Haman, Haman is ready to take out the entire Jewish nation because of one man's transgressions, one man's slights, perceived slights against him. Haman is ready to kill the entire Jewish nation. And so Mordecai gets wind of Haman's plots and he sends word to Esther. He wants to meet with her. And that's the passage Jerry read for you tonight in Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. This meeting, the problem Esther has is she wants to help the Jews, she doesn't want them to be eradicated, right? The problem she has is you can't go into Xerxes' presence unbidden. Remember, he's not exactly all there. He's a little bit unhinged. And so if you were to walk into his presence unbidden, he just might kill you. In fact, that's the general M.O. He's pretty good with a spear, better with a spear than King Saul was when he threw it at David a couple times. It's the death sentence if you were to come into the king's presence unbidden. And Esther tries to articulate that. And Mordecai Mordecai just doesn't seem to care because he's already on death row from Haman's plot. And so he says, reasons, logic like this. Maybe you've come to the throne for just this reason. So that you can provide salvation to the Jewish people. And of course she intercedes and, and does indeed deliver the Jewish nation. My faith, your faith, our faith doesn't need to be like a ruler. This is a little bit tongue-in-cheek because Esther's a ruler, right? But when we break out our ruler, our our yardstick, it's pretty comfortable to measure something using the the ruler if you're working in feet, right? If you've got just a couple of feet, like if you wanted to measure uh, the pulpit here, You maybe do it with a ruler, right? If you start trying to measure the distance between here and Beckley, a ruler's not going to be the right instrument to use, is it? It's going to get a little bit uncomfortable to use that unit of measurement, right? Esther was pushed out of her comfort zone. That shows her faith, doesn't it? We get awfully comfortable doing the things that we've always done. And that's a little bit of a problem, isn't it? Because God expects more out of us. He demands more out of us. And so we, as His people, are people who are constantly pushing against, pushing back against our comfort zones. I want to serve in new ways. I want to lead in new ways. I want to think in new ways. I want to give and sacrifice in new and deeper ways because that's who he's called me to be because this is a transformative life that I'm living, right? He's calling me away from who I used to be, living for me, and calling me into Christ, To live, to think, to function like Him. That demands me pushing myself out of comfort zones constantly. My faith can't be like a ruler. Not like like a ruler, a unit of measurement. I need to be constantly pushing myself out of these comfort zones. And so if you're comfortable leading a prayer... Maybe it's time to try out a devotional. If you're comfortable talking to someone about coming to church with you, maybe it's time to get into a Bible study with somebody. If if you're comfortable leading singing, maybe it's time to expound, expand some of those regions. Come on a mission trip with us. Go go on some of these trips. Do these things. Expand your borders, right? Right? Faith doesn't have borders because we're constantly pushing against them, learning new things, learning new techniques, learning new um, ways to to live and be and act and think. We're constantly pushing against that because if I'm comfortable doing what I've done, it's time to push me out of my out of my comfort zone. You think Esther was out of her comfort zone when she? No doubt timidly walked into Xerxes' throne room. I bet she was. But what does that do for her faith? Oh, it revolutionized it, didn't it? I bet after that day, her faith was a lightning rod for future growth. Our faith, my faith, your faith, needs to be like that of a giant killer. Constantly looking for opportunities to do something, to express my faith. It can be like a mustard seed, just so small. But if I take advantage of it, it grows into this massive enterprise, this massive life that God has built for me. It can't be like a ruler, though. I need to keep pushing against those boundaries. Tonight, if you're ready to push out of your boundary and come into Christ to have your sins washed away. Baptism is the answer. It's the way into his family, but it's also the way to have your sins washed away, to become one with him, to start this transformative effect in your life. Tonight, maybe you've already made the decision and you're struggling. Transformation's hard. Living life like this is difficult, but that's why the church is here, because we're designed to pray for each other, to love each other, to build each other up and encourage each other. And so tonight, if that's your need, why would you come and let us do that as we pray for you and with you that you can be everything that God would have you to be. If you have any need tonight, why don't you come as we stand and sing?
1: Fear not, little flock, says the Savior divine. The Father has will that the
2: kingdom be thine.
1: O oh, soil not your garments with sin here below. My sheep.
4: Good evening, church family. A couple of announcements before we are dismissed. Um, Youth group activities uh, this Tuesday, uh, Jelly Ball Battle at the McAllister's house. Uh, Wednesday, uh, Escape Room at 5 o'clock. And Saturday, uh, the Fort Hill Gathering at 6 o'clock at the Knapp's house. Um, Also, a reminder that um, Rick said this morning is that there will be a meeting after Sunday services um, on Sunday morning, uh, so uh, for all the trustees to talk about the business of the of the church, and then also uh, Sun this Sunday is potluck and friends day. Uh, there will be one o'clock service. Um, there will be no six o'clock service. Updates on our prayer list. Remember, continue to keep Jimmy Wilgus in your prayers, uh, Sean Maynard, Jim Haney, Amber Spitzer. Keep them in your prayers as they're going through their cancer treatments at this time. And also keep Merritt, Joe and Sandy Galloway's granddaughter, in your prayers as well. Uh, That's all the announcements I have. If you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer.
0: That meeting next Sunday morning will be brief. It won't take but a few minutes. Uh, 129, one verse.
1: Step I take, my Savior goes before me.
5: Thank you so much for another evening to gather together, to, to worship together, to hear your word spoken. And Father, it's my prayer tonight that we heard the words that were said. Uh, our charge to boldly declare our faith, that our faith requires action to be real faith and alive faith. And as we heard the stories of many Old Testament um, people that heard your call, that stepped out in faith, and were obedient to the call that they were given, whatever that task and however uh, little sense it made to their earthly minds, that they submitted themselves to your plan. And Father, it is my plan, or it is my uh, prayer tonight that we submit ourselves to your plan for our lives, that we that we do the work that you've called us to do, to be your ambassadors that brings the, the light into the world, that we are not ashamed of the gospel, of your redeeming love and the gift of your son Jesus for our salvation. And let all those that we come in contact with and all those that we meet give us the courage and the boldness to stand up for the faith, to, to make our account of, of Jesus and to tell his story of who he is and what he did and the hope that we have because of it. Father, guide our steps, lead us into all truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.